Welcome to the Midas Touch Legal AF podcast. If it's the weekend, it is Legal AF. Ben Micellis and Michael Popak breaking down all the legal issues of the week. The key, critical, pressing legal issues. We try to break it down in ways that you all will understand, relate to, understand the implications. And we've got a lot to discuss. Michael Popak, how are you doing this weekend? I'm doing great. And uh, I'm really glad that I think I think the brothers are sprung and from the YouTube jail, which I appreciate. Yeah, there was a bit of YouTube gate going on in the past <laughs> week where it was very odd. We played the video of Governor DeSantis bullying. It was just disgusting when Governor DeSantis bullied the high school students who he was using as props at University of Southern Florida. He was out there actually supposedly touting cybersecurity program within the within academia. And when he saw these high school students wearing their masks, he yelled at them. He called it COVID theater, told them to take off the masks and told them that they look ridiculous. It was a very the opposite of leadership. And it's also the opposite of what it's supposed to mean if you're a conservative, you're supposed to be about personal responsibility and the individual's choice. It was literally an example of big government yelling at the average citizen and telling them how they should act. Can you imagine what the chapter in the high school textbook's going to look like, not in Florida, but in other places. And on this date, Governor DeSantis yelled and screamed at underage high school students to remove masks before he started a speech. So presidential, so much leadership being displayed there. Such a nice chapter in a future history book. And at the same time, you have over 953,000 deaths in the United States from COVID uh, it is the opposite of COVID theater to downplay right. this raging uh, well, pandemic that came upon our shores. What was he yelling and screaming at the Florida children in ICUs not to die? Um, right. Because of his policies? No, he just screamed. Talk about theater. He just screamed at children to look like a tough guy, like a Putin guy uh, at, a, at a press conference. That's what the party's become. Yeah. You know, and I, I still think, Popak, I referenced this on the Midas Touch Brother podcast. You know, there are legitimate discussions, legal and otherwise, that I think we can have over should uh, during a pandemic, large corporations be able to keep open their stores? Should the targets of the world, the Walmarts of the world, the CVSs of the world remain open and the mom and pop shops, the small businesses, the restaurants have to shutter and close and go out of business. You know, my heart goes out to all of the small businesses and the restaurants. In fact, early on in the pandemic, you know, I was fighting for a lot of restaurants and small businesses to come up with something creative um, of can we do outside dining? Can we do this in a safe and effective way? Um, and I think that's fair to have those discussions. But the moment that people start saying that COVID is a hoax, that the vaccines don't work, that just is beyond irresponsible. That is aiding and abetting really the, the murder of Americans and, and people around the world. Through that, we're going to talk a little bit later in the podcast and in the first beat of the podcast um, about 
a Navy leader who is actually commanding a ship as a leadership position of a $1.8 billion ship who refuses to get vaccinated. Not only that, intentionally, it seems, um, or at the very least, recklessly spread COVID. All of his commanding officers said, this guy can't be leading this ship. And you have a federal judge who's been very sympathetic to the anti-vax movement um, saying, no, 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 no. He's allowed to lead the ship and you can't take any adverse actions again. And we'll get to that. But it's really uh, COVID has done a lot. And it's also exposed this underbelly of conspiracy that actually isn't the underbelly. It's the overbelly, you know, and to see how prevalent some of these anti-logical views are and people in power holding these views. It's been, it's been incredibly depressing, but I'm still confident that the majority of people out there um, want, and, and a significant majority of people, um, want their children to be safe, follow science, care about these things. We just have to talk about them. We have yeah. to be loud and proud about the truth, about science. Yeah. And we're going to talk about that Fifth Circuit ruling that's basically Taken, uh, taken Biden down as the commander in chief of the armed forces and had replaced him with uh, three ultra conservative members of the Fifth Circuit, again, the Fifth Circuit, and uh, coming up from a trial judge that seems to be the go to judge for the Republican right wing causes. They they file in his court. They try to get him as the judge. He makes, you know, really outer boundary off the margin rulings like Obamacare should be repealed. He gets reversed seven to two. And other things. He seems to be anti-health uh, and and healthcare. Um, but we're going to get to that when we talk about the Navy SEALs and how a court has replaced uh, the President of the United States as the Commander in Chief as it comes to the deployment of troops. First, let's start off with the Supreme Court. However, reinstating the Boston Marathon bombers' death sentence. Uh, you'll recall uh, Jokar Sarniev, the younger brother. Uh, terrorist uh, who killed many people during the Boston Marathon. His older brother died in a shootout during the manhunt that transpired after this terrorist attack in 2013. He was found guilty. Jokar Sarnev was found guilty in the trial court and sentenced to death. Uh, The Court of Appeals Uh, overturned the First Circuit Court of Appeals, overturned the death sentence in 2020, finding that the lower court judge improperly excluded evidence that could have shown Sarniev was influenced by his older brother and specifically evidence that his older brother may have been involved in other murders prior to the Boston Marathon. The triple homicide Uh, on the anniversary of 9-11 that they think the brother was involved with before the Boston Marathon bombing. There's, and there seems to be significant evidence to suggest that, although the uh, lower court judge in Sarniev's trial said, we're not going to make this trial about another trial. Uh, you know, we're going to focus right now on Sarniev, so we're not going to bring that information in. That's not relevant uh, to the calculations here of guilt or innocence or of the application of the death penalty. Um, and in a 6-3 split along pretty much party lines, not pretty much the six, three, the sixth right-wing judges, the three not right-wing judges ruling against uh, the death penalty, finding that the first circuit court of appeals was uh, followed the law when they overturned the death sentence. Popak, what do you think about this Supreme court 
Really. Yeah, it was a um, swan song for for Breyer. He got to um, probably for the last time state the progressive position that the death penalty and capital punishment should be um, eliminated and found to be cruel and unusual punishment. Under the Eighth Amendment, of course, the only two other people that agreed with him on that are Sotomayor, Sotomayor and Kagan. Presumably, uh, Katanji Brown Jackson probably holds that view too and will replace Breyer. But we'll keep losing that that debate six to three for my lifetime on the death penalty. So we had that in there. Thomas wrote the majority opinion and he said something. It wasn't that objectionable to me. I've heard this before when it comes to the Sixth Amendment and the right to an impartial trial, uh, a fair trial and one with impartial jurors of your peers. And what Thomas basically said was it wasn't a perfect trial. But that's not the guarantee of the Sixth Amendment. The guarantee of the Sixth Amendment is not perfection. I mean, if there's reversible error, it should be resolved by the appellate court and ultimately by the Supreme Court. But it's not perfection we're looking for. We're looking for impartial jurors. He found that the First Circuit's uh, position that the jurors in jury selection process were not properly screened on how they had been influenced by the media um, did not rise the level of reversible error and, and, and reversed the First Circuit's decision on that and found that the issues of, you know, whether from a sentencing, remember, he's already he's already convicted. This is not about the fact, just to be clear to our legal AF law students, <laughs> you know, on our on our podcast, you know, Jokar Sarnaev is guilty. He was convicted of almost 30 counts leading to the death of three people. And, you know, it's been a while since we've talked about this. Um, it's Lingzi Liu who was a 23-year-old BU, a Boston University graduate student, Crystal Campbell, who was a restaurant manager, and an eight-year-old, Martin Richard, who were who were tragically killed and dozens maimed in the Boston Marathon bombing, and a police officer, Sean Collier, who was, who was killed on the lead up to the Boston Marathon bombing. So they're guilty. He's guilty. His brother was guilty. They're guilty. This is about sentencing. And this is about whether there were mitigating circumstances that would lower the penalty off of a death penalty down to life imprisonment without possibility of parole. That's what's at stake in the appeal. And that's what Thomas was clarifying. So it's not not about him being found innocent. It's about whether he was going to spend his entire natural born life in jail or he was going to be executed under a federal series of counts. So, um, you know, they found that the death penalty sentence was appropriate and that the fact that he was the younger brother and, you know, much younger and probably under the influence of his brother, there's not something that's exculpatory that lowers his guilt for the purposes of sentencing him to death. But just let's just bring it home and make it a reality. Uh, The Biden administration is very reluctant to execute people, even though they have the power to and federal executions under Biden have dropped to zero. Just by contrast, under the Trump administration, in the final six months of the Trump final term, he killed, he he executed 13 people. You know, he like cleared the decks of the death row, and Biden has not. I mean, Biden has expressed his position. It was a weird place for him to be, Ben, don't you think? Because Biden is public about being against the death penalty, yet his administration had to support the death penalty imposition at the Supreme Court level. What do you think about that? You know, we've seen that a few times where uh, Biden and their Department of Justice has had to defend pre-existing cases that were inherited. And, you know, that's 
Batman. That is part of the continuity of government and continuity of cases. If you took an all of a sudden an about face based on uh, what was pled six months ago or nine months ago and all of a sudden changed it, it could create real confusion and, and real problems. But ultimately, despite the fact that uh, he had his DOJ supporting the Trump policy because they had to, in effect, they're not actually implementing uh, death penalties at a federal level. And and you and I have talked about our own views about the death penalty. Um, you know, and when you have a case like the Boston Marathon and a terrorist attack that's so obvious, so in your face, instinctually, I want to be supportive, like in, in my blood, in my gut, I want to say I support the death penalty. But then when I take a step back and I recognize that the death penalty has been misapplied in certain cases, knowing that the death penalty has been a tool that has executed many innocent people. And that it's also a tool of negotiation and bargaining power where district attorneys and prosecutors use it to negotiate plea deals and agreements. And, and it's a tool. It's just where we are as a society right now. You know, I just, I'm against it. I think it's a flawed system. I think that um, it's, it's, it, it feels like something that in many cases I want to have that revenge, but sometimes I have to take a step back and think through the implications. Yeah, agreed. And now turning our attention, uh, Popak to, uh, what's going on in federal, certain federal judges that are now intervening in our national security affairs. I mean, the implications right now, while there is, uh, the unlawful invasion of Ukraine by Russia, while we need to have uh, the most ready, able, prepared military, we have federal judges who are interfering in that readiness, which is just shocking to me. And so I'll talk about Tampa, and then I want you to talk about what's going on with the Navy SEALs. But yep. out of uh, Tampa, federal judge, uh, an anti-vax judge is preventing the Navy from deploying a warship. There are admirals who are trying to remove this insubordinate commander uh, who is an anti-vax commander and who intentionally spread or seems to have recklessly spread COVID, who's controlling this $1.8 billion ship. The judge at issue is named Stephen Douglas Meriday, a George H.W. Bush appointee who sits on the federal bench in Florida. He gained attention in 2021. He blocked the CDC order um, that was trying to limit cruise ship operations during the pandemic. So he was saying, cruise ships, go ahead, spread the pandemic. And so uh, a lot of the anti-vaxxers have been trying to file in Meriday's court. Uh, and here they uh, wanted to, uh, again, challenge the ability to have vaccine restrictions on the Navy, on the military, and claiming that it was a violation of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And what's really wild about Meriday's ruling is that he didn't simply say, and, and Slate's done a really good job, but everyone go to Slate to read this type of um, describing what went down. But he didn't just say that 
this particular commander who was referred to as John Doe, the judge also granted this commander anonymity, um, which is a very rare to be granted, but not just an exemption. Um, the judge said that the military, in this case, the Navy, cannot relocate him, cannot engage in any employment activity to move him in any way. And just one of the things that this particular commander at issue did, who's now on this ship. Um, so he refused to get a COVID test when he had a raging case of COVID and he was coughing. They said, take the test. He refused to do it. And then he went down into a cramped room with 60 other people, coughing, sneezing, spewing his germs over everybody, getting everybody else infected. And so not only did he have it, he like intentionally or recklessly get everyone infected. Is there is there evidence that other people got it? It says he refused to get tested. It's a clear violation of protocol and attended a briefing in a cramped room with 60 other people. He was ordered to get a test revealed. He did have COVID and he exposed dozens of others to the virus. And so at the very least, he exposed at least 60 other of his shipmates to it. Um, and this is what they said, that he intentionally deceived his crew. He put his crew at risk. He failed to comply with the Navy's COVID policies, engaged in negligent behavior. Yet the judge said, this man needs to stay on the ship and don't you dare move him to another ship. And if you do that, you know, and this is someone who's controlling like weapons. Like this is someone who, you know, who who may need to be trusted in the event of a war, you know, with, you know, with Russia. Um, what's going on? I mean, it's 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 insane. So, Popak, tell me about the other general court intervention in our government's ability to function with the military. This is not going to come as any shock. We've got the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals again, sticking it to uh, Joe Biden and his presidency and now undermining and replacing him, in effect, as the commander in chief. We now have three judges in Texas who believe that their decision making, their authority supplants that of the commander in chief now during basically wartime about troop deployment. I mean, there's no more fundamental right of the president as the commander in chief, the highest ranking officer in the land than troop deployment. And he, in consultation with Lloyd Austin, his secretary of defense, has decided that the Navy particularly and, and the other branches as well need to be vaccinated, the personnel, in order to do their job in order for a spree, spree de corps to be maintained, in order for the chain of command to be maintained, without which there is no military and there is no um, ability to lead the military. Everything is about the chain of command. Well, the judges have decided they don't care about the chain of command. They care more about their values as it, as it relates or their decision-making as it relates to the vaccine. And so we have a group of Navy SEALs Supposedly the toughest warriors, one of the toughest warrior batch that we have in all the military, who have decided that on religious grounds, they do not want to take the vaccine because it interferes with their bodily autonomy or it's an irreversible um, injection of a drug that, you know, with unknown consequences and everything else. So, you know, a bunch of Bible thumping um, right wing conservatives have ginned up this lawsuit and got 13 Navy SEALs to file it. And they filed it in their court of choice in Texas. And they got Reed O'Connor, who's also a uh, uh, Bush appointee, 
Um, and he, he people will remember him because he tried to abolish Obamacare single handedly and lost seven to two with that Supreme Court. Um, and he's done some other nutty things, but they love him because he'll 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 issue these rulings. So he enjoined in February uh, Biden and Austin from not accommodating the religious convictions truly held, he said, of these Navy SEALs and ordered that they be deployed along with all of their other SEALs on sensitive missions, which could include the Ukraine, uh, include the Ukraine and other places that are related to our operations overseas. And um, the, the, the Secretary of Defense basically said, no, um, I am with my commander in chief, the highest, the highest authority, and I believe it destroys esprit de corps, it destroys the chain of command, and I'm not going to be ordered by a judge as to who gets deployed to where and when. And the judge actually is going to hold a hearing on, an, on a contempt, um, the trial judge, on a contempt order as to why his order to force the deployment of these SEALs um, and, the, and the Department of Defense's decision not to do that is not contempt of court. And, there, and, and so the government has to answer for that. In the meantime, it went up on appeal to the Fifth Circuit. And because Trump packed the Fifth Circuit on the way out with six appointees, so basically it, it was already sort of conservative, but now it tilts Trumpian as a result of Trump with six different appointees. So it's a three-judge panel. We've talked about this before on prior podcasts. Generally a three-judge panel for the uh, for the Court of Appeals, in this case, the Fifth Circuit, to hear a case. And the three judges, two of them are Trump appointees, right, right-wing Federalist Society. And the third, Edith, Edith Jones, who people may remember from the Reagan days because she was on the short list for the Supreme Court then, has been accused of being a racist based on speeches that she's given at universities like University of Pennsylvania Law School, where she accused uh, blacks and minorities of being more violent in her court, you know, in terms of crime. So you have a racist right wing Edith Jones, two Trump appointees. And so, of course, in their 29 page decision that wasn't signed and it was per curiam, meaning it was the majority, it was the view of all three of them. They took the Navy to task. They basically said 99 percent of the Navy is vaccinated. But you've allowed 5000 out of um, you know millions 5,000 active duty members of the Navy not to be vaccinated. So it's not like you're doing 100% and you're deploying them. And we don't like the way you're trying to uh, assess religious conviction and, and uh, good faith religious exceptions to medical issues. And so under a body of law um, that you and I have run into before called the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, RFRA, RIFRA, They've said that the Navy has violated RIFRA, it's subject to it, and violated it because um, of the 47-step process the Navy uses. And I'm not kidding. I think it's 47 steps. In it, it really puts, in their view, the thumb is on the scale in favor of vaccination and against religious freedom, and we're not going to allow that. So now three judges, Edith Jones and two others, are now the commander-in-chief when, when it relates to deployment of troops in the world. And that is a scary, chilling place to be. With, with these three who live in a vacuum, live in a hermetically sealed world of a black robe, are now basically telling our highest leaders how to deploy their troops. The Religious Freedom Restoration Act was also what was used uh, by the Tampa Bay federal judge as well. 
Yeah, they love that. But you know what? You know what, Ben, back to your point about this is not the conservative way. And, and what are they doing when when a Republican is sitting in office and they believe in the unitary executive? OK, theory, they love unlimited, almost unfettered war power of the commander in chief to detain com- enemy combatants, to exclude immigrants at the borders, which Trump tried to do under his war powers, to deploy troops and everything else, except when it's a Democrat in office and it's a vaccine. Yeah, I mean, they're ever shifting. You have to realize that it always is ever shifting when it comes to the radical right. As long as it protects their privilege and their perceived political wins, that's all they care about. And that's where they will move. And one day they'll be a strict constructionist when strictly construing the words validates their point. Um, when it doesn't, they'll all of a sudden find other ways and other meanings and try to look at historical context and come up with some other way. There literally is no logic. You know, what I like about um, pro-democracy judges, because I think you're either radical right extremist at this point or you're a pro-democracy judge, um, like, unfortunately, the minority three judges who are on the Supreme Court right now. Um, with Kagan, Sotomayor and and Breyer and soon to be Jackson, which we should talk about Tucker Carlson for a second, quickly demanding her LSAT score. But look, what what I like about the pro-democracy ideology is we're always trying to advance human rights forward and correct some of the archaic anachronistic evilness that existed in the past, but remain ultimately consistent to democracy. Like we'll still call balls and strikes at the end of the day, whether it's at a trial level. And there may be things I don't agree with. There may be things I agree with, but ultimately the law is what's going to guide it, not trying to overthrow the United States government. Like it seems like that's what the radical right wants to do. But you got to talk really briefly, though, about this LSAT issue with Tucker Carlson asking for the LSAT scores of Biden's nominee. Yeah, I you know, this is part of, um, you know, you said underbelly overbelly, which I liked a lot. I like the imagery of Republicans with overbelly. But this is not even it used to be you and I would talk about it like, oh, they're blowing a dog whistle that only, you know, the racist dog whistle. He's playing the race card out loud up front. He would never have the temerity to ask a white candidate for the Supreme Court what their GPA or law school admission test LSAT score is. Um, if first of all, what the F does that have to do with anything? It's accusing her of being the product of affirmative action and that she never got anything other than what was handed to her with a helping hand of affirmative action, which is a bald face lie. And that's why, you know, we're back to defamation, because if you do any research about Kentonji Brown Jackson, which, by the way, he refuses to pronounce her name properly, just as he did with with Kamala Harris, um, you know, he calls her to. Kataji, it's Katenji. If she wasn't the number one in her class, she was the number two in her class starting at high school. She was the class president in high school. I saw a beautiful picture of her when she was in uh, at Miami at Palmetto High School, and she was super accomplished. She was the president of her debate team. I mean, you you, you don't win, and I was I was a debater. You don't get to be the president or the head of your debate team because of affirmative action. You get there because you're a brilliant orator and critical thinker. That's how you get there. And then she goes to Harvard Law School, and then she gets on to Harvard Law Review, which there's no affirmative action at Harvard Law Review. You either have the grades and the writing ability to be on law review or you do not. 
She then becomes all the other things in her life where she's appointed has nothing to do. I don't know what her LSAT score is. I know what mine is. I don't even know what yours is. But what does it matter when you have a president who barely, you know, Trump barely passed Penn, University of Pennsylvania. It's well known that he was a C student. Well known. The kids, too. The kids, I, I would like to see I, on this show, I, I would like to see Ivanka's transcript, Don Jr.'s transcript, and, and Eric's transcript, and, and Trump's transcript. I bet you they are terrible. From what I know from people that have attended school with them, I would not be surprised if they're not very good. Tucker Carlson's transcript. I like, I like to see his IQ test, but I'd also like to see his transcript. And what does it matter to her body of work and accomplishments? Be dignified. Stop being a racist. And the good news right. is we are motoring through her confirmation process and she's flying through with flying colors. She's met Republicans and Democratic senators. So far, so good. That progressive groups like yours are running ads in favor of her. It's going well. There's a groundswell of support. And, it, and if all goes well, Biden has said, and it's going to happen, she's going to get confirmed by Easter. And then she's going to take her place. I know Bi Bi she's going to sit for a bit because Biden, uh, sorry, Breyer wants to wrap up the term. I think he said he wants to step down in May. Um, but but that could change. But she is going to be confirmed by by like before Easter Sunday. Just give you uh, in terms of Tucker Tucker Carlson's qualifications. Oh yeah, so, oh, yeah. oh and, good. <laughs> so you know it, it's well known that he's a, a trust fund kid. You know mm -hmm. who's got you know very wealthy parents who basically paid for his entire life. So M most Tuckers are. And so in 2008, this was unearthed by The Intercept some time ago, but this was an interview that Tucker Carlson gave in 2008. He said, I'm like extraordinarily loaded, just like from money I inherited from my number of trust funds. I go out and beat some servants. I'll wrap my Lamborghini around a tree, go pick up a kilo of cocaine or two, just like normal stuff like that. I'm completely a trust fund baby. I never needed to work. The whole cable news thing was a total pose. It was just like a phase I was going through. And so that's what he said in 2008 in terms of his qualifications, just so everybody yeah. knows that. They should be fast tracked, you know, to the Supreme Court based on that body of work. But, you know, they they do it with, like I said, with a, with a, with a temerity to do it because they, their audience will not take them to task will not say, you know what, that kind of crossed the line. I may not agree with our with the who is the president of the United States today on policy grounds, but this person seems well qualified. And, and what the F was the qualifications of Clarence Thomas? People should go back and look. He had a mediocre body of work that doesn't even come close to comparing to, to Katanji's body of work at all. He had low-level jobs. He was with the EEOC, all different things. He did not have a step. He wasn't at top firms. He didn't, he didn't do well in his, you know, he didn't do as well as she did in law school. And, and he's, he's on there. I mean, Kavanaugh, we, we sat through the hearings. We know what kind of college student he was. So this is only um, racism writ large, so obvious, and it, but it takes progressive organizations like the Midas Touch uh, podcast and, and platform to call it out for what it is. I mean, it, it's sad that Republicans don't cringe when they hear their talking heads say things like this. It's just, you know, I know you got to fill airtime, but, but, you know, Pick, a, pick on somebody your own size, and she's much bigger than you are. And then secondly, 
you know, go do real, like we do, real critical analysis and thinking and opinions. Even Judge, I mean, Judge Barrett, I mean, every Republican nominee that they fast track don't have the qualifications. And Katanji Brown Jackson has, you know, beyond ample qualifications. And that's what you have to hear yeah. uh, Tucker Carlson say. This podcast is brought to you by Athletic. Athletic Greens. Everybody knows that Athletic Greens is my favorite. I drink Athletic Greens every day. If you want to know, does Athletic Greens work when it comes to me? I just say, roll the tape. Look at videos of me from about four months ago. And then when I started drinking Athletic Greens and me today, and there are so many stressors in life, it's difficult to maintain effective nutritional habits and give our bodies the nutrients it needs to thrive. Busy schedules, poor sleep, exercise, the environment, Environment, work stress, or simply not eating enough of the right foods can leave us deficient in key nutritional areas. AG1 by Athletic Greens, the category-leading superfood product, brings comprehensive and convenient daily nutrition to everybody. Keeping up with the research, knowing what to do, and taking a bunch of pills and capsules is hard on the stomach and hard to keep up with. To help each of us be our best, Athletic Greens will simplify the path to better nutrition by giving you the one thing with all the best things. That's right. One tasty scoop of AG1 contains 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, including multivitamin, multi-mineral, probiotic, green superfood blend, and more in one convenient daily serving. The special blend of high quality bioavailable ingredients in a scoop of AG1 work together to fill the nutritional gaps in your diet, support energy and focus, aid with gut health and digestion, and support a healthy immune system effectively replacing multiple product or pills in one healthy, delicious drink. And as the research changes, so does AG1. While most nutritional products remain stagnant, AG1 uses the latest research. It's improved its formula over 53 times in the last decade and has some of the best research out there. It's lifestyle friendly. Whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free, it contains less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything while keeping it tasted good. So join the movement of athletes, life leads, moms, dads, rookies, first timers, and everyone in between who are taking ownership of their daily health and focusing on nutritional products they need in the simplest manner possible. That's essential nutrition. And to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you an immune supporting free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase if you visit athleticgreens.com slash legalaf today. Again, simply visit athleticgreens.com slash Legal AF, take control of your health and give AG1 a try. I can't speak highly enough about Athletic Greens. I drink it every day. The Midas Mighty drink Athletic Greens every day. I see all of you getting it. If you don't have Athletic Greens at the end of the show or even right now on your other device, you can Google Athletic Greens and make sure you get Athletic Greens immediately. Madison Cawthorn Popak, we talked about, um, well, our last Midas Touch Brother podcast was called uh, Cockamani. We, we, we brought back the word cockamani. Um, and the Madison Cawthorn federal injunction against a, a group 
a group that we had on the Midas Brother podcast, seeking to disqualify him under the 14th Amendment, Article 3, which disqualifies individuals who take part in rebellion and insurrection against the United States. So this uh, group filed with the Board of Elections a disqualification in the state of North Carolina, preventing Madison Cawthorn, or if they prevailed, would have prevented Madison Cawthorn from holding office based on his support of the insurrection. After this group filed that disqualification request, Madison Cawthorn filed a injunction request in a federal court in North Carolina, asking that that action in front of the Board of Elections be enjoined, be stopped, in other words. Um, And he argued Well, I'll let you say, Popak, what was the cockamamie argument, but ultimately the argument prevailed? Oh, yeah. I remember we talked about this like three podcasts ago, and I was like, wow, we're going to go back to the the time of the Confederacy and when the um, 14th Amendment, a clause in the 14th Amendment that you and I, I'm sure, never studied in law school. um, We just glossed over because we never thought we'd see the day when somebody would try to uh, participate in as an elected official in the insurrection or the violent overthrow of the government and then try to run for re-election. I mean, that hasn't happened since the days of the Confederacy. And the um, and the and the, the reason the 14th Amendment was written and that clause of the 14th Amendment was to prevent people that had taken a, an oath of, to uphold the Constitution who ended up separating from the Union and setting up the Confederacy once there was, you know, once Lincoln... Um, was able to prevail in the war and the country was um, was re-established as a as a union. The union was re-established. I'll read the clause, Popak. The 14th Amendment, Section 3. No person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector, a president or vice president, or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States or under any state who have previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States or as a member of any state or as an executive or judicial to support the Constitution of the United States shall have engaged an insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. Right. And so you had Confederate officials and Confederate generals who were running for election after the union was reestablished. And that clause was used to keep them out. Now, there was a statute that was passed afterwards, apparently by two thirds of Congress at the time that allowed basically a a short window of time for uh, people that had supported the Confederacy to come back into office. In other words, Congress would decide by a two thirds vote that that um, disqualification uh, would be removed from that individual or those individuals and allow them to run for office. And that statute's been sitting on the books for 150 years as well. That doesn't mean that the 14th Amendment and the third clause that you just read is not still on the books under the US Constitution, the highest law of the land, to prevent people who participated in an insurrection from being barred from office. Why does it matter? Because Madison Cawthorn is running for re-election on the 13th district of the, as a Republican in North Carolina. Um, the, the elections board um, has a valid petition or had a valid petition in front of them or has one to have him not be able to be on the printed ballot that's going to be printed for the May primaries. And he ran to federal court. And we'll talk about the judge in a moment that he pulled. 
And that federal judge, after hearing the argument, says, yeah, I see the third clause in the 14th Amendment, the one that Ben just read. The Constitution. Uh, yes, of the, the US con- <laughs> of the U.S. Constitution. But I also believe that the statute that's still on the books, it can be used even for future insurrectionists or potential insurrectionists. So he not only he didn't overturn a ruling by the North Carolina Board of Elections. He's preventing the North Carolina Board of Elections from holding a process to determine whether he should or shouldn't be on the ballot. And his argument is, I need to enjoin this now because the ballots have to be printed and the election is in May, which is a relatively short time away. This judge is interesting. This judge is a Republican, but a Jamaican American. He was a law professor at the University of North Carolina. Um, you know, sort of a professorial guy. And, you know, he had an interesting comment in this ruling. He said his job as a federal judge is to protect the soapbox, the ballot box, and the jury box so that people don't grab the ammunition box. That's a direct quote from his case, which I thought was eloquent, although wrongly applied in finding that the 1872 law applied to Madison Cawthorn. This is now going to go up to the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals, which is sort of split. It's not as right wing as the Fifth Circuit, um, but, you know, tends to be conservative. It's, it's still sitting in North Carolina, after all, um, which is sort of purpley, but has gotten more red over time. And then um, I'm sure there's going to be an appeal because, you know, right now he's allowed he's not he's he's keeping him on the ballot, Madison Cawthorn, and he's not letting the Board of Elections do its job, which is really weird. So the Fourth Circuit's going to have to do an expedited appeal. If they rule in favor of the North Carolina board, then they'll then they'll conduct a hearing to decide whether Madison Cawthorn sits there or not with an expedited attempted appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. So we have not heard the last of Cockamini. What do you call it? Well, I'm, I'm trying to think through if there was ever a legal maxim that applies here. And the legal maxim would be something to the extent of like, illogical interpretations should be completely ignored or struck down because under his theory, Vladimir Putin can run for Congress. If he was a U.S. citizen at some point. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. He's been an enemy of the of the people. He, <laughs> he the statute under, under, would apply to that. Yeah. I wonder which district he would run with. Maybe the 13th from North Carolina or the one Marjor- Marjorie Taylor Greene represents in northern Georgia. Under his theory, this judge's theory, no, someone can say, I'm an insurrectionist. I want to overthrow the United States government. Actually do, you know, literally go and do it. I mean, brag about it. I mean, that's basically what happened anyway. Um, And then run and then run for office. I don't even understand the judges, how he thinks that statute works. The way I read the statute and the legislative history around the statute Congress would Congress has the power on a two thirds vote to remove the disability in this case. Yeah, you you participated in the insurrection or you were a Confederate general, but we're going to let you back in on a two thirds vote because we think you've rehabilitated yourself and for other political reasons. But there was no vote here. The the two thirds of the Congress did not vote to allow Madison Cawthorn to run for office again. And the statute just sitting on the books is not the embodiment of a two thirds vote from 140 years ago, 150 years ago to allow Madison Cawthorn now, because it's just, it's so, you're right. It's so ass backwards. You and I said it before, 
the statute, I get it. It's still on the books. And, and maybe you can argue that it applies to something other than the Confederacy. Maybe. Maybe. But even if, but, but even if you do, I Ben, don't you read it to to require Congress to vote on a case by case basis and get a two thirds vote to allow that person to to run for office if they are ultimately found to be disqualified or disabled? Yes. And there's just no way that what Congress was contemplating after the Civil War was to give a free pass to all insurrectionists right. <laughs> on future civil wars. And Buy one, get one free, folks. Any, I mean, you're saying that that law is, is a free. There was a pro-insurrectionist law. Congress said, here's what we need to do. Our lesson from the Civil War is we need to give every insurrectionist more. immunity in perpetuity. We need more insurrections. So what? <laughs> Under this logic, 500 years from now, there's an, you know, 18, you know, the 1870 yeah. Insurrection Act. That's clearly not what it was for. It was about for a very discreet period of time trying to rehabilitate individuals who renounced their Confederacy affiliations. That's right. what it was. And 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 but now you're going to see a Supreme Court because we're going to talk about it when we get to the EPA decision uh, or the oral argument that just got held about the EPA uh, rulemaking. And you see where the Gorsuch's and the Kavanaugh and the Thomas's heads are at whenever they talk about the founding fathers or the framers or the legislative history. Um, it's, uh, you know, it, it's this is this contortionist, tortured interpretation of things about what was in the minds of these people at the time they passed the statute. And you and I as thinking sentient human beings look at it and go, that can't possibly be. And the legislative history doesn't support that. And yet they'll find some stray comment and they'll say, see, founding fathers never thought to do that. And therefore, we're not going to do it today in 2022. So let's break down what this EPA oral argument is all about. And, and, and let's situate it in the, the deeper context of what's going on. So the radical right extremist Supreme Court and the radical right extremists that founded the Federalist Society and put these radical right extremists, they used to be called conservative. They're now radical right extremists. That's what um, we call them. They don't want our government to function. One of the way our government is able to function is when Congress passes laws, it delegates the authority to implement those laws to agencies because people actually have to do the work for the law to actually have effect. Congress and experts can say, should help make the and experts should help make the rules, not some elected official about water pollution or air pollution. So Congress can pass laws saying, you know, uh, signed by the president, saying we want to reduce pollution. We want to reduce carbon emissions. We want to reduce this, that, or the other. And okay, great. Well, who's going to do it? Um, the agencies have to do it. And so whether that's the EPA, whether that's, uh, you know, uh, education, there's a whole host of agencies out there that are the ones who kind of implement it. And the agencies will take the law will take the legislation that's been passed and they will do their best to implement it and come up with administrative policies to put these laws into effect so that it actually does what it says it does. But the radical right extremists do not want the government to actually function. 
So they've come up with all of these doctrines, non-delegation, major question theory, you know, all of these things, which basically says an agency is not really allowed to do anything unless Congress not just tells the agency what it can do, but like literally has to spell out word for word for word for word for word in the piece of legislation what the agency has to do to implement it. And if Congress doesn't do that, then the agency is not allowed to actually function and are not allowed to implement the law. And what they realize and the practical effect of what they realize is that Congress doesn't do step-by-step-by-step-by-step guides. Congress compromised, they passed, you know, broad legislative mandates and requests, and then they expect the agencies to do it. This, this, the radical right knows that. So they know based on this dynamic by coming up with non-delegation, you know, duty and that reforcing Congress to lay out very specifically the roadmap, they know they're just going to cripple the agencies. And that's what they're doing here with the EPA. And Popak, the interesting thing about this case that just had oral argument with the EPA is that, you know, it was regarding reductions in carbon emissions about making, uh, addressing critical climate change issues under the Obama administration. But Biden, even with withdrew the specific policy that was at issue um, to try to recraft it in a way that would be um, would likely meet a Supreme Court criteria. But even though Biden withdrew, the Supreme Court said, we're still going to we still want to hear this case. Normally, a Supreme Court would say it's moot. We don't want to listen to it. We don't do advisory opinions. We don't do advisory. Here, the Supreme Court says, we don't care that you're not even focused on this anymore. We want to tell you what agencies can or can't do. We don't even need cases anymore. We don't need Supreme Court label. We don't need a case. We're just how crazy is that? Break it down, Popak. That was insane. We don't even need a case. We're just going to legislate from the bench, which is exactly the thing you're not supposed to do at the U.S. Supreme Court level. So this is lesson for those that are checking off their their blue books at home. This is, I think we're up to admin law, administrative law 4.0. We've been talking about it literally from the first or second episode that we've done together, Ben. And now we see it again. And so what's going on in this particular case? You have the the, um, uh, Obama administration who, in order to try to reduce greenhouse gases, passed a series of laws that try to reduce carbon and fossil fuel and increase clean air and came up with all sorts of policies and procedures related to that. And it worked, um, you know, the, the, because of penalties and sanctions and the, and the statutory scheme that was created, um, business and technology joined hand in hand and decided it was more efficient to stop being polluters and was better for their business and better for their bottom line to be better corporate citizens and stop polluting the air. And they found ways through wind and solar and clean clean fossil and clean uh, coal. Um, I know that sounds like an oxymoron, but there is such a thing as clean coal to reduce greenhouse emissions and the use of, for instance, coal. And that was on the books and it, it was successful. Trump destroyed it. And with a stroke of a pen and executive orders, you know, his EPA, which was led by the coal industry, Primarily, I think the head of the EPA was either a coal lobbyist or a lobbyist for another sort of dirty, small d, dirty industry, putting the the, the fox in charge of the chicken house, the chicken pen. Um, you know, 
undermined all of the all of those things and pulled out of the Paris Accord and all sorts of other things that that uh, we like as progressives, clean air and clean water. And Trump found a way to find that to be a bad thing. And then Biden, you know, Biden is now has his EPA and his head of, of that, which was a former state EPA director, knows what he's doing. And and they're they're now working on and they haven't yet developed in the last year. They've been busy on other things the new policies and guidelines that the coal industry, for instance, are going to have to follow. They haven't, they haven't published them yet. They haven't gone through rulemaking yet. But that didn't stop 16 states, mainly led by West Virginia, all coal states, to bring a federal court action to try to stop the Biden administration from going back to the Obama days. Biden hasn't said what he's going to go back to. That's why this is not a live controversy. This is why the first argument that was done at oral argument on Monday um, and got some curious um, questions from some of the sitting judges, including one of the Republican ones, one of the Republican appointees says, why are we here now? Why does why do we have standing as the Supreme Court, which is a court of limited the most limited jurisdiction possible is the U.S. Supreme Court. They are not supposed to take every case. They're supposed to use in a very um, conservative way, small c conservative way, their jurisdiction. Why are we here? The Biden administration hasn't moved yet. It hasn't developed case law yet or, or, or administrative guidance. But that hasn't stopped a group on this, on this court led by Kavanaugh, Thomas and Roberts to make what's called the major questions doctrine, which is brand new, it's in the last 10 years, and is used by the right wing to try to shrink government so small, to quote Lee Atwater, uh, Reagan's famous political director, to make government so small, you could drown it in a bathtub. And how do you do that? You throw sand in the gears of the government. You throw sand in the gears of administrative agencies and stop them from implementing policies that will have an impact on the economy or on the, the, the political body. It's a value judgment, which is what the, the, the members of the Supreme Court say that believe in the major questions doctrine. They say, Yes, the agency is delegated certain authority under what we call Chevron, which is a case from the 19, I think the 1970s or 1980s, which gives a tremendous amount of delegated authority by the Congress to the agencies to do their job and to do the backfill of all of those words that you talked about, Ben, all of those little details in, in hundreds and thousands of pages that are published in the CFR that give the rules and regulations for each area of, of our economy and each regulation related to that. And the way that the the way that Congress delegates, it's not just like, you know, here you go and let us know how it turns out. Congress has to pass a law as you have you as you've talked about. Congress has to provide oversight. Every agency reports to a committee or a subcommittee of the US Congress. <laughs> the uh, every one of them and they have to go before Congress either on a regular basis or they're called in specially like, hey, EPA director, get in here. Tell me about this policy that you're that you're planning to do and tell me why that's consistent with the law that we passed. That happens all the time. That's what goes on in the day to day boring machinery of Congress in their role as the um, as providing oversight. They also control the purse strings. You don't like the EPA, you don't like you don't like what it's doing, you don't like the FTC, you don't like the SEC and you have the numbers in Congress, then you cut their budgets. 
then you give the FTC or the FDA or the, in this case, the EPA, you know, your budget last year of 5 billion, you're getting 1 billion. Let's see what you can do with that. And that's how through the, through the power of the purse string and the power of oversight. It's so insane, Popak. <laughs> like yeah, you almost think about it like maybe here's another example and may, tell me if you think yeah, this example sure. makes sense like a board of directors at a company that then you know puts forward the direction of the company but then the company is not allowed to do anything so the board just says here's what our goals are for fiscal year 2022 <laughs> and then it's like someone says well they can't do it why can't they do it well, unless you very specifically delegate every single aspect to every single employee from the assistant level to the secretarial staff, to the, you know, to, to this group, that they, they can't do anything. It's, it's hamstringing people to do anything. Yeah. And, and to take your, your examples, right. And to take it even further uh, in, in public companies, the board of directors, which would be Congress in your example, cannot do the day-to-day -day work exactly. at the, at the, at all. They're not allowed. They can set policy the executive, the executives in the in the C-suite, the chief executive officer, chief operating officer, chief financial officer, chief legal officer of that company report ultimately through supervisory methods. But the board can't do the it, by law, can't do the day to day work of the CEO. If they said, listen, we want to increase our bottom line by 12 percent this year. Thank you. See you. See you next time. The CFO can't just sit around and go, well, they haven't really told me how to do that. So I, I'm not, <laughs> exactly. I don't really understand that. So I'm not going to do it oh, off, off for lunch. So this is this is again, this goes back and, and people that like the historical references that you and I make go back to Lee Atwater, go back to Carl Rove, go back to Grover Norquist. This is the goal of conservatives. This is this is their their thing is they hate government. They hate agencies because they are regulating big vertical sectors of our economy. And that's what the major questions doctrine created by the Federalist Society and the Federalist judges was meant to be a to be a um, to put that at loggerheads with the Chevron doctrine, which is to defer except in extraordinary circumstances to the agency's decision-making because they, as the experts in that particular industry, whatever you're going to call it, nuclear, water, power, energy, securities, stocks, they are, there are experts in these agencies that know this stuff cold that you and I, you know, we will do a podcast for a couple hours a week, but I'm not an expert on water and, and air environmental policy. They are. And the scientists are there. But, the, you know, Republicans hate science. So they don't want scientific agency people making decisions that impact the economy. And now that Kavanaugh's gotten on who is a big major questions doctrine person. He's now joined hands with Gorsuch on one and Roberts was always there and Clarence Thomas was always there. By the way, the major questions doctrine is so radical that even Antonin Scalia, who was the basically the lone right winger for long periods of time, the most eloquent writer on that side of the of that side of the bench, before he passed away, even he didn't buy the major questions doctrine. This is this new generation. This is Federalist Society judges 
3.0 who have grabbed grabbed hold of this and use it as a battering ram to beat up agencies and to stop them from doing their work. Because the longer this gets tied up, you know, even with them sitting around uh, gazing at their navel and and you know rolling their hair about hmm, this is interesting. There's no real case or controversy, but we we really want to make a, a proclamation. So let's tie this up in the courtroom for another four or six months. And what's happening then? The EPA isn't doing its job, and the air is getting dirtier. You know, it kind of goes back to what we said earlier on the podcast. You know, even when it was about COVID. There are legitimate discussions that I think can be had about whether a small business should be shut down when you leave the large business open right next. I'll have that debate, but don't call it COVID theater, right? Don't don't be a dumbass. Don't be a murderer. Don't don't go down that direction. It's kind of the same thing here. We could have debates. Is this regulation overstepping? Do we think here the EPA, while trying to do great work for our climate, is hamstringing business so unduly that we can't be competitive internationally? As a Democrat, a big D Democrat, I'm happy to have those debates and try to find the right balance that exists. But when you say an agency is not even allowed to do the work, when you're saying that we have to completely ignore climate change or we can't address that issue, when you try to destroy the very essence of the ability of government to function, I think I don't think government's the greatest thing. I, gov yeah, government screws up a lot. You know, none of us are happy when you look sometimes at not lots of times when you see how much money you're paying in taxes and then you drive around and you go, where's it being spent? That's all right. We have the right to question that, but we shouldn't destroy our government in that frustration. We should try to make it better. And that's where, you know, the, again, the radical right extremists lose me and they lose me in either their conspiracy or even they're over try, trying to over intellectualize common sense is to me a species of conspiracy where they go in there to justify their radical right extremist beliefs, which actually aren't over intellectual. It's just pretending to be smart. We could probably have this philosophical debate forever, Popak, but tell me about like Lightstream because I love Lightstream, Popak, and I don't know if you knew this, but did you know that refinancing your credit card balances can lower your interest rate and save you money and you don't have to be a financial expert to do it? Did you know that, Popak? You know what I like about this new sponsor of ours, Lightstream? They believe- Lightstream. I do too. They believe that people with good credit deserve a better loan experience. And that's exactly what they deliver. You know, you have all of these and we've had them. I mean, I came out of college with a bunch of high interest rate credit cards and I was like, why am I, why are these balances not going down with, with minimum payments? And then finally you see, it'll take you 30 years to pay it off at that rate. And so Lightstream wants to reward you for having, you know, uh, a good credit and they're going to find a way to consolidate all of your loans into one loan at a much lower interest rate, allowing you to pay off those total balances at a much faster rate so that every one of your dollars goes towards the debt instead of to the interest of the way, the way that they're doing it. So you can get a fixed rate credit card consolidation loan with Lightstream and you could save thousands in interest as a result. The rates start, Ben, at 4.98% right. APR. 
APR with auto pay and excellent credit. And you can compare that to your credit cards that are at 19, 20, and 30% sometimes, or consu- other consumer loans. You can get a loan from $5,000 to $100,000. Um, and there are absolutely no fees related to it. The application process is 100% online. You don't go into a bank. You don't go into an office or a brick and mortar. You can even get your money in your bank account as soon as the day that you apply, which is which is fascinating that they're, they're able to do that and really great for our legal AF listeners and supporters. So, uh, and of course, there's a special uh, a special feature for our legal AF listeners. If you apply now, you'll get a special interest rate discount. So that whatever the great rate is, they're going to even lower it further for legal AF listeners and followers and allow them to save even more. So the only way to get this discount though, Ben, is to go to lightstream.com slash legal AF, all one word. So it's L-I-G-H-T-S-T-R-E-A-M-D-O-T dot com com slash legal af ben you want to do the disclaimer um no you do the disclaimer. okay then i'll <laughs> <laughs> this I'm is so, like tennis I, i'm so right you. <laughs> Popak, you I'm, do the disclaimer. So ena- I'm so enamored by Lightstream. Yes. you do the disclaimer all right subject to credit approval rates range from 4.98 percent apr to 19.99 a percent APR and include a 0.50% auto pay discount. Lower rate uh, that we just quoted you on this on this uh, ad is, is subject to requires excellent credit. Terms and conditions apply and offers are subject to change without notice. Visit lightstream.com slash legal AF for more information. No, I love Lightstream. Everyone check that out. I'm so proud that they are sponsoring this. And we work hard to find the right sponsors for you and to have the right kind of discounts for you and to make sure that we use the things that we have on, you know, on this podcast. And so another sponsor I want to talk about is Policy Genius. Life insurance can give you peace of mind that if something happens to you, your loved ones would have financial cushion for rent or mortgage payments, loans, education costs, and everyday expenses. Having life insurance through your job just may not be enough. Most people need up to 10 times more coverage to properly provide for their families. Policy Genius is your one-stop shop to find and buy the insurance you need. Click the link in the description or head to policygenius.com and answer a few questions. In minutes, you can compare personalized quotes from top companies to find your lowest price. You could save 50% or more on life insurance by comparing quotes with Policy Genius. Let me say that again 50% or more on life insurance by comparing quotes with Policy Genius. The team of licensed experts at Policy Genius will help you understand your options and apply for the policy you choose. The Policy Genius team works for you, not the insurance companies. You can trust them to offer unbiased help and advocate for you at every step until you're covered. Policy Genius doesn't add extra fees. It doesn't sell your info to third parties. Policy Genius has thousands of five-star reviews across Google and Trustpilot. And since 2014, Policy Genius has helped over 30 million people, including yours truly, shop for insurance and placed over 120 billion in coverage. So do what I do, do what Popak does, head to policygenius.com slash legal AF. 
to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. Again, head to policygenius.com slash legal AF. Popak, let's do those January 6th committee updates. A lot to talk about. We've got a criminal trial um, that began of one of the uh, insurrectionists. We have a guilty plea for sedition, uh, conspiracy and sedition. Um, just stop, just stop right there. In your lifetime, when you were coming out of law school, college and studying history, what was your undergraduate major? Political science. Mine too. So you're a lover of history too. Did you ever think that you'd be sitting, well, A, did you ever think you'd be sitting on a podcast hosting a couple of them? No. Did you ever think that you would be talking about in modern times, somebody that was going to plead guilty to a seditious conspiracy count for the attempted violent overthrow of the U.S. government? I did not. And nor did I think that there would actually be a federal judge who says, you know what, that person may be qualified to serve in Congress, <laughs> even, <laughs> right. even though I'm I'm conflating the two issues. Yeah. It, essentially, you know, you know, th- there'd be perhaps other disqualifications for this individual, but for that judge that he, he could probably run after he I served. I can't think life. of what they are. I mean, serial killer. I mean, what else would keep you off the ballot? But 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 exactly. But no, Popak, um, I never thought that would happen. Um, but not only did the DOJ and everyone saying, what's Merrick Garland doing? It's taken really long. Look, he started right. with the low level people. He's then got to the mid level people. He's escalated the type of charges to seditious conspiracy. Um, and now we have a guilty plea of an oath keeper. Tell us it's about 14, that. And it's 14. Back to what is Merrick Garland doing? He's he's prosecuting eight, almost 800 people. And he just put on within 13 and a half months his first trial, which we're going to talk about next, which is of, of Guy Reffitt. He of having both his children, not one, but two voluntarily testify against him at the trial. But we got our first seditious conspiracy, the highest count, the one that everybody loves and drools over. We have our first guilty plea. And it's of Joshua James in front of Judge Meta, who we we uh, admire on this podcast. Um, and he has pled guilty. He was one of 11. Just to remind everybody, there are 20 total uh, oath keepers led by Mr. Rhodes, Stuart Rhodes. Stuart who Rhodes, been- who wears the eye patch. He shot himself in the face is why he wears the eye patch. He's a gun instructor <laughs> who all- shot himself in the face. And then he had to wear the <laughs> eye patch. We had we had Stuart Rhodes' ex-wife. I don't know why. It, it's sad to laugh at somebody who shot themselves in the face. But when you're a gun instructor. And, but here's why he has to wear the eye patch, too. I think it was according to his ex-wife and his son, who we had as the podcast. A, a special yeah. guest. Yeah. Um, uh, he wouldn't wash the eye. And so he in, got infected so badly because he wouldn't wash the, the, the Plate, eye. Put plates of spaghetti tonight on our podcast are dropping all around the world on that description. So because of his poor hygiene, he couldn't wear the prosthetic eye. And, and apparently not knowing the business end of a, of a weapon for which he was an instructor. So Stuart Rhodes is the leader. He's the hub of the spokes of the conspiracy. Nobody doubts that. He's sitting in jail because no sane judge would ever let him out in pre-trial. He tried to get out. I tried to get out twice. Um, but Joshua James is the beginning of the end for the Oath Keepers and for Stuart Rhodes particularly, because he has not only pled guilty, 
And he is one of 11, including Rhodes, who are charged with seditious conspiracy. The other nine or 10 are charged with uh, variations on a theme of federal crimes, including obstruction, but not the seditious conspiracy that everybody salivates over. But this guy has pled guilty to it, and he is cooperating with the federal government and providing them with all sorts of information. Now, let me tell you what Josh, Joshua James has already told the federal government and what the federal government has on these 11 people to begin with. And this already sounds, I mean, I, you and I can't make this up. If you and I were pitching a movie, they would be like, this is incredible. Or this is, this is ridiculous. We're not going to make this movie. They were running around the Capitol the days before Jan 6th in golf carts. Did you know that, Ben? Did you know that they brought golf carts to the Capitol to allow them to run around and do their surveillance and planning and run to the, ho- the Willard Hotel uh, and all this other, in golf carts in January. So that's one. So he's running around in golf carts. He apparently um, was part of the security detail for Roger Stone, not only on Jan 6th at the Ellipse, but also leading up to Jan 6th. So wherever Roger Stone went, Joshua James was part of the muscle that the, that the Oath Keepers provided. And he was armed um, and he admitted that he brought a gun into the into the Capitol and that he also conspired to stop. He admitted that he conspired to stop the peaceful transfer of power and that Stuart Rhodes told him to do it. And Stuart Rhodes told them to um, use deadly force against anyone that stopped Trump from being reappointed or put back into power, free and clear. So this is a terrible development. I'm laughing in a, in a, in a great way, in a heartless way, about Stuart Rhodes and the rest of the Oath Keepers, who this is the beginning of the end for them. What do you think, Ben? Oh, I think it is the beginning of the end, but also the end of the beginning um because thank you, i think thank you thank you winston churchill <laughs> i think we <laughs> had to reach for had to reach for that one yeah um because i think we're now going into another phase right with this charge the question is is now that you have a seditious conspiracy yes stuart rhodes to me is a foregone conclusion that he's either going to plea or be or be convicted but who were they also in the conspiracy with? That becomes the critical question. People like John Eastman, Pete, which we're going to talk about in a second, Trump's lawyer, who's claiming attorney-client privilege as Trump's lawyer on the day itself. Um, and we're going to talk about why that's important in a second. But that's why we're at the end of the beginning and we're reaching a new phase now, an escalation phase of the prosecution um, with that with that guilty plea. That's why it was such a big guilty plea to have. But let's talk about what the January 6th committee um, is doing. You want to talk John about Eastman. Guy Reffitt first before we Let, move on? Ex- he read my mind, Pope. I, I try to. <laughs> you sometimes to. read mine. <laughs> we're we're right. mind lawyers and mind readers. So tell us, Popak, about the trial that just began, why they focused on him as the first trial. And, yeah. and, and what do we see on the first day of uh, or the first few days of trial? And Ben, it's a perfect bookend for um, what we just talked about with the Oath Keeper, with, with uh, Josh James going down. So Guy Reffitt is um, the first of Jan 6 trial uh, on obstruction uh, and other counts that the Department of Justice is putting on in Washington. Um, he was a part of the Texas militia, a group called the Three Percenters. By the way, even in their name, it starts with their conspiracy theories and, and mythology that's just wrong. 
They're named the three percenters. You know why they're named the three percenters, Ben? Isn't there a view though too that it would take three percent of the population to like overthrow the government? It, that's close. They believe, and this is totally wrong, and one they would have failed Ameri- basic American history if they gave this answer in an essay in high school or otherwise. That only three percent of the American col- of the colonists during the American Revolution fought against the British to overthrow uh, and throw the yoke of British imperialism off of the American colonies to make them states. That's a bald-faced lie. Uh, but they named their whole organization after this, this total made-up bullshit mythology that only 3% and the other 97% were totally fine with King George. That's wrong, um, a- along with many other things. So Guy Reffert, um, I thought this was interesting, but I don't know if you caught this. The opening statements were this week. The government's opening statement, even though they had a a tremendous amount of evidence against him and witnesses and two children that are testifying against Guy Reffitt, they only did a 30 minute opening. I've never done a 30 minute opening in a case ever, let alone a case of such magnitude and justice being involved. But they look, they got it down to a science. They got 30 minute opening. Um, They went through how this person led. It was the tip of the spear, their words, who led the assault on the Capitol and the first assault on the Capitol since the War of 1812, that he fomented this, he fomented the mob, he got them, he lit the match, he stoked the flames that he created with the match, he exhorted people to go up, up the ramps, up the staircases, attack the Capitol Police. He himself confronted the Capitol Police, confronted the Capitol Police in a violent manner. He created videos before, during, and after that were all all used against him or will be used against him during the course of the trial. He went so far in a, in a, they actually have a, see even, even crazy right-wing violent militia overthrowing people do Zoom. So they did a Zoom, a Zoom meeting. And of course the government got a copy of it. And so he's in this Zoom meeting in another place is saying that he will not rest until Nancy Pelosi is grabbed out by her ankles and dragged down the stairs and he'll sit with glee and watch her as every, her head hits every stair being dragged out of the Capitol. This is his words, not mine. And this is what they're putting on at the government level, along with two of their children, including an 18 year old son who, when he took the stand this week, even Reffert, tough guy Reffert, burst into tears at the sight of his son testifying against him at all. Do you know how long, Ben, on that note, do you know how long the opening statement was for Mr. Reffert? Guess. 30 seconds. You're so close. <laughs> but, you're, you're, you, but you're remarkably close. It was a three-minute, I'm not making this up, three-minute opening where he basically said, my guy didn't assault anybody. My guy, let me remind you, he didn't assault anybody. He talks a big game, but, you know, that's just rhetoric. And as soon as he got hit, with 14 rounds of pepper spray. I know the number. He didn't say 14 rounds. 14 rounds of pepper spray. He fell back and did not um, continue to, to uh, lead lead the insurrection or the assault. That That's the complete defense this guy has. And then, you know, Jackson Riffett, Riffett his son, takes the stand and said, I, this is the scary part, though, and you and I, you, Ben, you and I have talked about this before. He alerted the uh, FBI uh, Christmas Eve before the Jan 6 insurrection that his father had gone off the rails and uh, was packing heat, had weapons, and was talking about the violent overthrow of the the government. And I don't know what the FBI did with that tip, but they did not apprehend 
Raffert, and he went to the Capitol. In fact, the son said, my father disappeared for a day or two. I didn't know where he went. Um, I was just hope I was hopeful that he didn't go to the Capitol as I tipped off the, the, the FBI. And uh, they put on already this week two different Capitol police to talk about Raffert particularly and the and the assault on the Capitol of which he was a major part. So, um, I mean, we'll we'll continue to report on it. I'd be shocked if the jury doesn't convict him and send him away. You know, the judge will ultimately sentence him for up to 20 years. But there's no way he avoids a conviction here. I don't even know why he's trying this case. Finally, Popak, I want to talk about the January 6th uh, commission updates. Uh, Big news this week out of the January 6th commission. It was somewhat buried in a, a technical motion. But it was the first indication, the uh, first statement of the January 6th saying that uh, Donald Trump was engaged in a unlawful conspiracy to try to overthrow legitimate election results. I mean, we all know that when I saw that it was like, duh. Um, But it's the first time the January 6th committee said that and in a court filing to a federal judge. So which court filing and which federal judge and and what's the context here? The context is John Eastman, formerly a professor at University of Chapman Law School, uh, who has stated that he was serving as Donald Trump's lawyer on the date of the insurrection. Um, January 6th subpoenaed John Eastman for his records. John Eastman is based in the Orange County area where Chapman Law School is. John Eastman objected to the request by the January 6th committee for his documents relating to January 6th, his communications with the president. Um, And so the January 6th committee moved to compel those records. And so based on the jurisdiction of where John Eastman is located, that went to the Central District Federal Court of California in their Southern Division. The court is in Orange County. It's before Judge David Carter, a decorated Vietnam veteran, a well-known, a highly respected judge, a judge who I've personally appeared before. And uh, my firm and myself was appointed as the counsel to the Securities and Exchange Commission several years ago in a large uh, fraud case. And we were serving as the SEC's conflict counsel in in a very big case. So I have actually a lot of experience with Judge Carter. He starts his court early. Like there are sometimes Judge Carter will start his court at like 6.30 a.m., 7 a.m. in the morning, which is unusual for judges. I mean, you usually start 8.30, 9.30, but he goes in there early. He's someone who works with uh, on rehabilitating prisoners and so like ways to remove their gang tattoos. He's very hands-on, very pro-democracy and just a no-nonsense judge. So Judge Carter initially demanded that Eastman produce a significant tranche of records and documents that were not being claimed as attorney-client privilege or which couldn't be claimed as attorney-client privilege, but then set aside these other documents that Eastman was saying, I can't turn over these records. These records are attorney-client privilege, confidential communications between me and Trump and the White House, and I'm the lawyer for the White House. Now, the attorney-client privilege is a 
means that your communications with your lawyer in the course and scope of their representation are confidential. Now, there are exceptions to that. If you waive the attorney-client privilege by talking about it, if you're the client and you start talking about what you're telling your lawyer to third parties, if you write books about it, that's a way you can waive the privilege. There's another, uh, there's a few others, but another way you waive the privilege or the privilege doesn't exist or there's an exception to it called the crime fraud exception. So an attorney and the client can't commit crimes together and then say, hey, you can't look at these documents because they're attorney client. It's called a crime fraud exception. Can, I, can so, I just comment on that before we before we leave it? It's not in, it's not only that they can't commit crimes together. The way the crime fraud exception works, and this I took from Judge Car uh, the filing in front of Judge Carter as a reminder, because we learned it a long time ago, is that even if the lawyer doesn't know that the reason he's being consulted is because of a crime or fraud, and even if the crime or fraud are not actually um, uh, achieved, the crime fraud exception will destroy the privilege and allow those documents or information to see the light of day. So it's it's I don't want to leave the impression that the, like the lawyer and the client have to be in cahoots together to commit the crime. The lawyer doesn't even have to know that he's being consulted for that. Hey, how many you know, if I were to do and if I needed to bury a body, I mean there the lawyer knows. But if he's being asked some like some arcane side issue that is going to help the perpetrate the fraud or crime but he's not aware of it, that's okay. That will still remove the privilege and allow that communication to be produced to the other side. Right. And that's for the actual commission of crime. So if you're saying, well, if you represent someone who committed a crime, isn't that always the crime fraud exception? No. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's for it's it's right. in the commission of the crime, the right. lawyer's communications can't be used to aid the crime. So what Congress was telling Judge Carter, this judge is John Eastman is improperly claiming these documents and emails and records as attorney-client privilege. But your honor, John Eastman was engaged in criminal conduct. With who? With his client. Tell me. With Donald okay. Trump. That right. he was engaged in criminal conduct on that day with Donald Trump, and they are involved in a criminal conspiracy. Those documents should not be shielded your honor. So that's the argument. That's why yeah. the headline is January 6th committee says, you know, Trump involved in criminal conspiracy. The context is getting those records. I'm going to tell you what I think. Judge Carter is going to order that those records oh, yeah. are going to be produced. So John Eastman, who is too smart by half so far, I mean, typical of the lawyers that were retained by Trump to basically tell him anything. I mean, they'll, they'll just They'll tell him anything that he wants to hear. And, you know, he found this crackpot law professor, John Eastman. And, and John Eastman, you know, whispered in his ear. He's like kind of the, uh, the uh, snake charmer. And he told Trump, oh, yeah, we can overthrow the election. And here's how. And we just get Pence to not certify the vote. And we return it back to the states. And the states will then... Um, you know, we got it at the state level, you know, the five battleground states won't won't certify and then we'll throw it to the House of Representatives and and suddenly you'll be reinstated as the president of the United States. And this is Eastman is the architect for the legal. He's he's honest about it. He, he said, I in fact, in order to in order to assert the privilege, he has to say, I gave legal advice about these issues on these memos and this is what should be done. And, and our analysis, the problem is that they've now interviewed 
the Jan 6 Committee, Select Committee, has interviewed people like Meadows and um, uh, the Department of Justice personnel, including uh, Jeffrey Rosen. And they've all said, yeah, we sat down with, with Trump and we told him that this is all bullshit, that none of this is going to work, that none of this is a lawful, proper analysis. And he's still, you know, so he can't possibly really believe the big lie because we've told him that there, there's no empirical evidence of fraud and that this theory that John Eastman's come up with is full of crap. John Eastman says, yeah, but you can't get my documents because I was giving advice. So the Jan 6 committee filed a 211 page uh, brief, which you just uh, started to summarize, Ben, in which they said, these are the reasons the documents aren't privileged. One um, you weren't functioning as an attorney when you had the communications with Mr. Trump. You were giving speeches at the Jan 6th rally. You were, Trump told you to go reveal things for him. So you weren't functioning as an attorney. So that your communication with Trump at that moment is not privileged. That's first tranche. Second tranche, you, it's not attorney-client privilege because you communicated not just with your client, Mr. Trump, but you communicated with third parties along with Mr. Trump, and that destroys the attorney-client communication because that's a, that's a privilege that only applies to a client and a lawyer. If you bring in a third party, whoever that is, and there's no extended privilege with that third party, could be a wife, the housekeeper, another employee, somebody that you know sitting next to you on the train, you've now destroyed the privilege, at least arguably. That's the second tranche. The third tranche was he claimed it's work product. It's the mental impressions of a lawyer. They said, no, this doesn't rise to the level of work product. And again, you disclose that to many, many people outside of your client relationship. So it can't possibly be that. And then they, because the judge, this Judge Carter that you think so highly of, and now I see why, because the judge at a hearing recently raised the issue of the prime crime. I just made a new word, the crime fraud exception, <laughs> the crime fraud exception and said, what about the crime fraud exception? And the panel said, hmm, yeah, we'll get back to you that in our, in our brief. And in their brief, they say, we have, and this was the part that was really satisfying, but also chilling to, to us. We have a good faith belief that the president of the United States participated in a fraud, a conspiracy to defraud the United States in the obstruction of the of the work of the House of Representatives and the Senate to to affirm the election and the elector and the electoral vote, um, not the seditious conspiracy count, but a a conspiracy to defraud. I mean, the fact that they actually typed those words, the president, the then president or ex, soon to be ex-president of the United States participated in a conspiracy to defraud the United States and a cons and a conspiracy to obstruct is is bone rattling and 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 chilling that's never been written even with our prior crazy presidents andrew jackson comes to mind we didn't write those words and so you're right it was buried it was like on page 199 of 211 uh when they raised the issue but this is the thinking this is now a window into the thinking of the jan 6 select committee and and the eventual criminal referrals that they make and the department of justice to so people that are haranguing merrick garland Department of Justice doesn't have to wait for a referral. They've now seen this now filed the way you and I have seen it. And they can come out and say, let's open up an investigation, which I hopefully they've been working on. And this is part of the evidence stream, this whole filing and evidence stream that they're going to use. So we're going to have to follow this. It's definitely a eye opener about where after almost a year, the Jan 6 committee is mentally and emotionally. Um, and, um, and they did a good job of, if people want to see 
how the synthesis of all the evidence, the you know hundreds of people that have testified, the the hundreds and thousands of pages of documents so far. Until if you want to, if you can't wait for the hearings, which will be coming up soon. Go read the 211 pages that was filed with Judge Carter, and it will give you a pretty good roadmap as to where the Jan 6 committee is in their investigation. Because we also see through those filings and other things that the January 6th committee has uncovered uh, is Eastman's real-time communications with Pence's staff at the White House, where he's telling Pence um, to commit quote unquote, minor violations was the use of the minor violation. By time. Yeah. yeah. And, and so by time, it's, it's even they ex- thought he was nuts. Even Pence's own counsel and general counsel thought Eastman was crazy and say what you want about Pence. And you and I could have every show about Pence and his lack of conviction, balls and leadership. But at the, at the very moment when our entire democracy hung in the balance, probably because of fear for his own life, he he finally did the right thing and stopped Trump. Because could you imagine, I, I don't want to imagine, the dystopian world we'd be in if Trump had another Trump light, like DeSantis, as his vice president, doing his bidding for him on that, that fateful moment, where would we be, Ben? Yeah, and there were a lot of people in Trump's orbit who would be willing to do that on on that day. And and basically what Eastman was saying in these emails to Pence and Pence's staff is because the objections, the debate on the objections to the elector slates has been delayed and didn't take place within the time frame under which the statute for certifying the electors is supposed to be done. You there don't you could then not certify the electors that day and you could throw it back to the legislature. So but this is where this all works together because the insurrection and the events of that day obstructed and prevented the counting which is an administerial task, what the vice president's supposed to do, took longer than it was supposed to. Then the next argument was, look, we already technically didn't do what we were supposed to do under the statute for counting votes. So now, vice president, you should be relieved of your responsibility to keep on counting and just say, hey, you don't know. There's too much confusion. Throw it to the legislatures at this point. So that's why the insurrection and the distraction was a major part of the legal strategy, which was a criminal conspiracy strategy. That's how it works together. And it backfired in the way, you know, we like to round these things out with the global world, the way the Putin strategy in Ukraine is backfiring and now bringing into the NATO and EU alliance countries that were sitting on the sidelines like Norway and Finland. We said, oh, we'll sit this one out. Now they're like rushing to get into these affiliations. Same thing here. The in my in my view, you know, I want to hear your opinion. The the Jan sixth insurrection scared the shit. They won't admit it, but it scared the shit out of certain Republicans. And when they went back the next day, I don't think it was that night. I think it was the next day when they went back. Even those nut bags couldn't pull the trigger on Trump's scheme, and they fell in line and eventually voted to confirm. Biden as president. I, that's where I think it backfired because 
they were like, you know, when you're like under attack, regardless of which flag you're wearing, you know, and you're white <laughs> from blood drain, you know, they came back and very sheepishly said, you know, I, 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 and then Biden was president. I think it backfired. It was part of their strategy though. I do agree with you. What do you think? Definitely backfired. Yeah. Um, and it's why it's why what we talk about on legal AF is so important though. It's why the prosecutions of these insurrectionists, why calling it sedition is so important. You give the analogy of Putin, we could talk about appeasement of despots and authoritarians throughout history that are like that. And we have to take an unambiguous and unapologetically pro-democracy anti-authoritarianism and we have to call it out at every turn you know it's difficult calling out assholes you know because assholes often make it there's a reason that they're in a lot of times the way they the way they are (laughs) like challenging someone like a desantis challenging someone like a trump who will appeal everything and try to create violence and try to destroy like that's sometimes we just want to go through our day have lunch go to dinner, go to sleep, read a book, listen to, you know, listen to a podcast. And the problem with that is when you just do that every day is you're just sometimes kicking the can inevitably down this descent. And it may not be this year. It may not be next year, but eventually you are going to be caught up in this one way or the other. And so taking an affirmative stance now, being proactive about your support of democracy and not staying on the sidelines is really the most critical thing that you can do and the most critical thing that you can take away. Yeah, from sometimes sometimes when I write um, on our, my Twitter feed about the show that we're about to go live or you know, we just dropped the pod or audio or whatever, sometimes just for efficiency. And because your brother has coached me on how to shorten up my tweets, I'll just do all caps, like live now, 8 p.m. Eastern time, see you there, you know, whatever I write. And I'll do it in caps because that's what I want to do it. And one person wrote me and said, and they like the show, they're supporters. They wrote, Popak, don't put it all in caps. It's like you're screaming. Like, don't be so screamy. Like, why are you screaming? This person wrote. And I wrote back, why aren't you? Why aren't you screaming about democracy, progressive issues, and getting into the participatory sport that is the protection, preservation, and propulsion of our democracy? Why aren't you screaming? You should be screaming. We're not here to make you screamy. (laughs) We're here to give you facts and to give you optimism that with your participation, good things will happen, but you got to participate. And it goes more than just using your ear muscles to listen to Ben, me, and the Brothers Podcast and all the others that are in the Midas Touch family or stable of podcasts. Couldn't agree more with you, Popak. I want to thank everybody for listening to this edition of Legal AF. Popak always enjoys spending uh, the weekends with you talking about these great legal issues. I want to tell all of our listeners as well and, and those watching, um, Popak and I are practicing attorneys and many of you have reached out with legal inquiries and cases, whether they're uh, sexual harassment cases, sexual assault cases, 
Um, got a call recently about a, a, a listener whose minor was actually sexually assaulted by a teacher. Um, and that's a case that we're going to be pursuing. Big catastrophic personal injury cases, um, car accident cases, breach of contract cases, business dispute cases. Reach out directly to me and Popak. We're happy to answer. My email is ben at MidasTouch.com. That's B-E-N at MidasTouch.com. Michael Popox is M-P-O-P-O-K at ZPLaw.com. That's mpopok at ZPLaw.com. Want to give a special thanks to all of our sponsors, our new sponsor, Light Stream. Check them out. Our sponsor, uh, Athletic Greens. And of course, our sponsor, Policy Genius. Thank you for all of your support. We so appreciate the Midas Mighty. Keep fighting for our democracy each and every day. We'll see you next time on Legal AF. Shout out to the Midas Mighty.